0: Good morning. Uh, please flip to Acts 21. While you're going there, I have to counterbalance uh, Mark's brief conversa- uh, comment about dancing. <laughs> so when I first went to college, my roommate, uh, who's a good friend of mine, we still call frequently, he's a therapist in Columbia, South Carolina, and now a professor, which is a big deal for him. And uh, when we first moved in to our dorm room, he did two life-changing things for me. It was Saturday the next morning. He woke me up and he was like, First Presbyterians down the street, we can walk there. Sinclair Ferguson is preaching there. We will hate it forever if we never go. You and me are going there the whole time we're here. I'm like, all right. You know, I had no plans. So anyway, so that was number one. Number two was sometime later that week, he was like, Andrew, look, nobody, we are not interesting. We are boring people. Uh, he's like, we need just something you know? And he's like, every Thursday night, there's swing dancing. And we're just going to go. And we're going to be terrible for at least a year and a half. But then sometime junior, senior year, suddenly we'll be like, eh, we're not so bad. And uh, fast forward, my junior year, I'm hanging out with Jess, whom I have a high interest in. Uh, there's a group, there's some, some young women there, some men there. The young women say, we'd love to go dancing. All the young men say, We don't know how to dance. And I say, I know how to dance. I'll dance with all of you. And the rest is history. So I came back that night, uh, still rooming with the same guy. I came back to him like, brother, I owe you one. You are my hero. So Brian, if you stream this, here's to you, man. All right. Dancing's great. Uh, Acts 21. So let me situate us briefly And what we're doing and how I want to end out Acts. So we're at like the last fourth of Acts. And as we get into it, the last fourth is is very history, history. And what I mean is when you're reading about the life of Jesus, there's uh, there's always these like multiple levels. Uh, It's both true and Christ is usually trying to teach us through his actions. A lot of this final fourth of Acts is straight up history about this is what happened. And a lot of it is Paul being dragged to a new place, and giving his testimony repeatedly. Uh, I am not a talented enough preacher to preach all of those and make it interesting. So here's here's the plan. I want to take today to set up the final fourth, and then I would like on my next couple of messages to do kind of an overview and pull out big themes of the end of Acts. So this is is my plan. So today's going to be a little different because I'm thinking about it kind of like part two on the last time I preached, which I'm sure you have permanently etched in your head and remember everything I said. But I, I want to take one more look at Paul and his priorities, uh, a little bit of overlap there before we finish up with the history of the church and what it means for us. So that's the plan, whereas normally, and this is right and good, we go verse by verse. That's It's going to be a little different the next few times that I go through this. So, what's going on here? What's going on in Acts 21? Well, Paul's life is mirroring Jesus's a little bit. He's beginning to head in towards Jerusalem, and when Jesus heads in towards Jerusalem, it's the big climactic moment. He's crucified and resurrected. Paul is heading into Jerusalem, and it is also a climactic moment in his life. Uh, Now, if you remember, there's kind of some circular, there's, there's some symmetry to what's going on here, because if you can go way back to when we started Acts. The early Christian church starts in Jerusalem and things are taken off. And then there's some antagonism. And we found a verse like this. Remember, we have our first martyr. Stephen is martyred for the church. And the passage says this. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him, at Stephen. They cast him out of the city. They stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. It's been a long time since we read that. But Acts started with the beginning of the church and Saul attacking that church. He leads the attack on the church and it literally says he drags men and women from the house, throws them in prison. Christians are scattered all throughout the land. The great irony, of course, is that God is going to use this scattering to spread the gospel in ways he could have never anticipated. Well, Saul decides to chase these people. He tries to hunt them down. In that process, he meets the resurrected Jesus. He's confronted by him. He's humbled. And he realizes that his priorities were totally wrong. He spends a long time traveling around Jerusalem, ministering to people. His mission changes. He's no longer hunting Christians. He's spreading the gospel. And now he wants to come back to Jerusalem. He left As a hunter of Christians, he's returning as a leader of Christians. There are three points of big tension as he's heading into Jerusalem. The first is simply the Roman world, okay? The Roman world is a dangerous world for a Jewish person. From their perspective, he's just a religious Jewish leader who stirs up trouble. The second is there are still Jewish sects in Jerusalem that are very against Jesus at the time, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and so on. Many of these groups have been viciously persecuting Paul throughout, and now he's coming to the home base. But the third tension is also this. There's a big group of Jewish Christians there, led by James. And they have some tension between Paul and the Gentiles. He's been spreading the gospel to people that maybe they didn't think were included. So there's a lot of reasons why this trip is scary and incredibly important to the life of the church. So Paul... Even with all this weight, he could have stayed out. He decides to head in towards Jerusalem. And we get this little passage. Uh, It starts off fairly fairly geographically, and there's like a 10% chance I'm going to mispronounce a word or two. But we're going to do it together and pull it out. So Acts 21, Paul goes to Jerusalem. And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to cause, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on to the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us, until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at uh, Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who is one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied, and while we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father, please bless this reading of the word. May we hear what you have for us, not what I have for us. Thank you for the ways you've been preparing us for this all week and ways we haven't even noticed. Thank you that you seek us out constantly, even when we do not seek you. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been thinking about a lot about uh, what is a modern, uh, a modern comparison for Paul. Who could we look at in the modern world? And the name that keeps coming up to me is a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, which maybe some of you have heard of this man. He was born in Germany on February 4, 1906, and he came from a long line of very powerful, talented, educated people. The list is ridiculous university professors, psychiatrists, theologians, aristocrats. And not only that, but his, his family history was full of really brave moments where they were willing to stand up to empire, uh, emperors for the sake of the church. And it seems like if you looked at young Bonhoeffer's life, he's destined for success. He has a warm family who loves him very much. He's on a trajectory that's only going to be success. I'm sure everyone who met him thought this guy is going to influence and change the world in some very powerful ways. When he was very young, around 14, he decides he's gonna study theology. He could not have known at that time that this was gonna put him in direct confrontation with his own government and many within the German church. About the time the Third Reich, the Nazi party, became ascendant, he was a published author and a fearless leader. He led underground church movements to preserve the gospel and did all he could. And finally, around 1939, when war was very apparent, he had already been persecuted in a lot of different ways. Some Americans got him out of Germany. But while he was away, he just got the feeling that he couldn't leave, that he had made a mistake by leaving his home. He wrote, I shall have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war, if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Now he's, he's you know got a family, he has connections, he's engaged. He has a lot of things to lose, this young man, and a lot of people who are willing to protect him and make sure he doesn't lose those things. And we can imagine the moments when he's wrestling and thinking, I have to go back, and knowing that that could be the final decision in some ways. He had to know that it most likely meant his death to return. And I I wonder about that first trip back home for him. I'm sure his friends also begged, imagine the good you can do with your writing and your preaching if you stay here and you live, but he returns. The result, he's soon imprisoned. He's passed around among prisons and concentration camps. There are stories of his, uh, his goodness to the people around him guards who loved him. He refused to take back the things he said about the Nazi party even though, as one writer put it, he was continually threatened with torture and with the arrest of his parents, his sisters and his fiance. His whole family was put at stake by this decision. And eventually, days before the concentration camp he was in, days before that concentration camp was liberated, he was hung. Now what do we do? with a story like Bonhoeffer's. If you read any of Bonhoeffer's work, if you read anything about him, I mean, it's a confronting story. It's hard to read it. It's not a story you read and you go, oh, that's nice. Uh, It challenges you. How does it square with ourselves and our own drive in the current moment for, say, self-care and happiness? Stories like Bonhoeffer's make us uncomfortable. At certain points, he chose things that seem actively worse for him, and not just for him, for everyone connected with him. Why do you do this? How did he do this? Well, this is hard stuff, and I think uh, what I want to try to tackle today is the, the motivation behind that, the motivation behind Paul and what he's doing here. And I'm going to get at something a little bit, and I want you to hang with me until I finish, okay? I think that sometimes, even in the church, we can be co-opted by thinking that, like, self-help methods of the world are the way to true happiness. Some of us are are so steeped in certain things that if you spend time with us and listen to us, you might begin to think that the path to true joy is not Jesus, but it's a a perfectly ordered schedule and a good night's sleep and a life hack and a good diet. And we may be tempted as Christians to do some kind of synchronicity, you know, what does it look like to be self-sacrificial? And also, can we we buy in, like, self-care, self-help, can these things coexist? And before there was Bonhoeffer, there was Paul. And here in this passage, we have the church begging him to do something that preserves himself. Don't go home, you'll be destroyed. And he does something else. And in the end, actually, he gets the divine seal of approval for this action. So we should ask, how does Paul confront us today? And before you tune me out, hear this. I'm going to critique some ideas behind self-care a little bit. But I want to give a different perspective that I hope is helpful for us. I'm not in the business of endorsing workaholism or masochism, and I think a great deal of the current kind of self-care, self-help movement is a pretty reasonable reaction to a fairly inhuman world. There's a lot of, tra- Imagine going back like 30 years and trying to explain to someone what work email is and why you look at it all the time, right? There's a lot of stuff that's patently absurd that we deal with, And I understand pushing back on that. And I have received a lot of personal benefit from reading great authors who've pushed back on those types of things. As uh, L.M. Sacasas, who writes The Convivial Society, seems to say over and over, we built an inhuman world and then became inhuman so we could belong to it. I feel that very deeply. So I want to honor that in where I I look at the self-care, self-help Uh, dialogue. I think a lot of it is pushing back on an inhuman world we've created for ourselves and tried to live in. But this is what I want to argue. I want to argue that the self, that the gospel gives us more than self-care. And I hope to leave you with more than that today. So hang with me, and if you disagree, we can fight afterwards. All right. For now, I want to look at two big shifts, two big framework shifts that I think define Bonhoeffer, that I think define Paul, and in their view, it's just two things I'm going to leave you with. The Christian is, one, not a god but a creature, and two, not a master but a servant. And that's it. That's going to be our shift for today. We're not gods, we're creatures. We're not masters, we're servants. So let's start with this first one. We're not god but we're a creature. So as we start this passage, Paul is heading towards Jerusalem. Uh, the church is begging him not to go They've even received some insight from the Spirit. There's some debate about that. What what does that mean? Is the Spirit telling Paul not to go and he's rejecting it? And most people think that what's happened is these people have a very accurate view of what's going to happen to Paul. That if he goes, he's going to suffer a great deal. And then they, seeing that, go, Paul, don't go. They receive that input, they're suffering, and say, hey, you should stay away. But Paul receives that input, they're suffering, and sees something very different. He sees kind of hints of the life of Jesus there. I intentionally selected a really difficult passage to be read up here at the beginning. I'm sorry for that. Uh, Luke 14, uh, where we were talking about, Jesus was talking about, unless you hate your family or yourself, cannot be my disciple. That's a really hard thing to hear. Uh, and of course, if you're a reasonable person, you immediately go, well, hate I'm not commanded to hate anyone, which is true. And this isn't some passage Jesus has tucked away in like a, maybe this is in the Bible part. This is a theme that runs throughout Jesus asking people to renounce the things around them, to follow him. And Jesus said this to a very pro-family culture. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my own disciple. These thoughts should make us uncomfortable. If they don't make you uncomfortable, I have questions for you. (laughs) And there are sentiments here that run against every culture in every part of the world. I work at a boarding school. I have had an opportunity to see family systems from all over the world. One of the things that's really consistent is the American family system seems to be the one with the least loyalty to family, the least respect for parents, and the least respect for grandparents. It's just pretty consistent. And many of my, it's been helpful teaching people from all over the world because they've confronted me too. When I've said certain things, they're like, that's a really American way of thinking about the family. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) And so I can picture some of my my students hearing Jesus maybe saying, anyone who does not come to me and is not willing to leave their family, and go, Oh, Jesus tells you to abandon your family for him? Yeah, that's basically what Americans are doing all the time. You're always abandoning your families. Uh, But there, right at the end, is the missile for the Westerner as well. And yes, even his own life. Jesus lets nobody off the hook. He says, you have to be willing to leave your family for me. You have to be willing to leave yourself for me. What do we do with this? Well, I think if you think broadly about the gospel, why it's offensive right now, it always boils down to the lordship of Christ over our lives versus our desire for personal autonomy. So culture tends to say to us, you're entitled to perfect health. Jesus says, I show my glory through health and sickness. Our culture says, reject toxic relationships from your life. Christ says, love your enemies. Our culture says suffering is a sign that something is wrong. And Christ says, suffering is the way to dependence on me. We say, be afraid of persecution. And Jesus says, rejoice over persecution. We say, sexual happiness is a right. Christ says, our sexual lives are wholly submitted to God. We say, self-care should be a priority. And Christ says, whoever loves his life will lose it. But whoever loses it for my sake will gain it. Now there are all sorts of caveats to those kind of things, right? Like loving your enemy when that person is someone who's abused you, that's a, that's, that, that's a different category. That requires work, that requires wisdom, and of course there are. That's the whole point of this thing is we grow in wisdom on how to love and follow God in difficult things. But the big principle is immovable. You can nuance it all you want, but at the end of the day, Jesus is king and that actually means something for us. Being saved is not something that just happened, it's something that's happening according to 2 Corinthians. Bonhoeffer and Paul obeyed Christ's command from Luke 14. They chose Christ over everything else. Okay, so if we're going to do away with self-care, what are we? Are we masochists? Should we just find the most dangerous thing and jump in and peace? It's been fun. I think the key is this. We're creatures and servants, as I said before. We are created by a loving creator. We are servants of a loving God. And so let's start by looking at creatureliness. Obeying God means understanding that we're not masters of our fate. That's actually good. That should cause some relief. We submit to the king. God has built in so many beautiful limits. Starting with the Sabbath, right there in the Ten Commandments, right, is the Sabbath. This one day, I want you to rest because you are a creature and you should rest should depend on me the person staying up every night even if it's for ministry needs to ask some hard questions about what they are about is this god's mission or their own do they believe god is one who honors faith and rest or is god a vending machine waiting for a certain amount of effort or even worse that there really isn't much of a god and it all boils down to what we do anyway well i want to give you and if you're writing these down write these down these are good Uh, my wife pointed these out to me who was pointed out by a friend. I want to give you three principles from Zach S. Wine on what it means to be a creature. And I think these are freeing things. And if I'm a little off from my passage right now, you're right. We're coming back. Hang with me. All right. Zach, Zach S. Wine is an author. He has three big principles for creatureliness. The first one, we can only be in one place at one time. That's really cool. <laughs> we can only be at one place in one time. And that means Jesus will teach most of us to live local lives. We will want to resist. We will want to read all the news. We will want to know everything that's going on everywhere all the time. But that's not what we're called to be. We can only be at one place at one time. This is a surprisingly common sense thing that modern people really have to wrestle with, right? We're in the era of Zoom and all that, and we can constantly not be in where we are. but we can only be at one place at one time, that is a gift. Two, we can't do everything that needs to be done. You cannot do everything that needs to be done. This means that Jesus will teach us to live with the things we can neither control nor fix. Uh, We may be pushed to feel like we can do everything, we can control everything. There's a new productivity app, there's a new thing, You can finally do it. The commercial shows the person who's really harried and out of control. But with this new thing, look how relaxed and calm they are drinking their coffee. Their kids are suddenly better behaved in the background. It's not real. (laughs) We cannot do everything that needs to be done. And three, we are unable to know everyone or everything. And that means Jesus will teach us to live with ignorance. We have to actually trust him. I think these things are actually really freeing things that God has given us as gifts to accept that we are creatures and that we can't control everything and that sometimes we say things like, yeah, I just need to sleep because I have a human body that needs to sleep every now and then. And those are creaturely things. When you begin to think about the commands of God, you find that so many, are just about embracing the fact that we're limited creatures. The Sabbath limits the amount of time we work, invites us to rest. Marriage and celibacy tells us we can't have everyone at once. And even if you're the greatest husband or wife ever, you only get to be the greatest husband or wife for one person, right? Maybe a few, depending on how your life goes. But you get what my point is saying. Even Jesus' command starts locally. Love your neighbor as yourself. We have limits. We can't change the world but we're called to love our neighbor as ourself, and the dominant mark of a creature is gratitude that's the dominant mark if your natural disposition is high anxiety high stress exhaustion which is mine most often the thing i find edged out is gratitude we are creatures made by a loving god who gave his son to die for us and that means that our lives can and should be marked by gratitude and this is not actually like a, you should feel bad, you're not grateful. As you lean into gratitude, I believe you will feel more and more joy in that experience. Yes? If you picture your way on to work or wherever you go and swap out whatever you're thinking about for prayers of gratitude, I think that's a beautiful thing. And it's a way of saying, I see the gifts that you've given me. I see the limits set before me. I can't be all things to all people. I think this is a notch above self-care. This is not serve yourself. This is allow yourself to be served by the king. This is divine care. Christian, one of the biggest ways you can testify to and experience the love of God is by living out the fact that you are a creature and you have limits. It's difficult because people don't want you to be that way. They're going to push you to do the opposite on all those things. This is what Zach Espline talks a lot about, and you'll have to let them down. I'm not talking about being irresponsible. I'm saying accept the fact you have limits. Want to start? Start by taking the Sabbath seriously and just see what happens. Start by saying no to things on the Sabbath or by saying, you know, every every Sunday, we're going to set two extra chairs at the table for lunch and we're going to try to fill them. We're going we're gonna to make the Sabbath a rest, restorative thing. Just try it and see what starts to happen. Okay, so Paul is a creature and that is... To me, such a big step up from self-care and I'm looking out for myself. No, God is looking out for us and has built-in ways that he serves and loves and cares for us. But I still haven't explained yet why Paul is running into Jerusalem. Why is he running into the burning building? Okay, so there's the flip side of that coin. We are not God, we are creatures, but we are also not masters, we are servants. If being a creature is the place where we're called to rest and depend on God, rest within our limits. Our role as a servant is where we're called beyond them. At every point that Paul runs into the church, they're begging him not to go. And they finally reach Caesarea, the port city of Jerusalem. It's built by King Herod, and Paul comes to Philip. I don't know if you remember, this is kind of a greatest hits passage of Acts. We're running into people we've seen before. Philip is the first person who he he led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. And he is like the beginning of the church to the Gentiles. And that's the last time we saw him. And here's Paul hanging out with Philip. It's a really cool thing. Uh, And I imagine the encouragement there was incredible as they went into each other. And Philip like, man, you remember back in the day when I was terrified of you? And now look at us. And we're sitting around and (laughs) praising God for what he's done. And then another prophet appears, uh, Agabus. And there's a ridiculously, He does this thing. He comes. He takes Paul's belt and ties his own feet and hands as like a symbol. There's a ridiculously large debate about how he did that in commentaries. <laughs> I don't know, but I'll, I'll leave you to think about it. <laughs> it's amazing how much ink has been devoted to trying to figure that out. But somehow Agabus gets Paul's belt and ties himself up and says, this is a symbol for what's going to happen to you as you head towards Jerusalem. We've seen this guy before. Uh, from Acts 11. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. So the disciples determined, according everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers in Judea. So he's shown up before. He's a God follower. He loves him. He's, he's pointed the church in the right direction, and he shows up here, and he tells Paul, this is what's going down for you. So why does Paul... Uh, continue. Why does he ignore these things? Um, I was thinking about this, and I was—I th- I have one place where I slightly can identify with Paul and Bonhoeffer. I'm nervous about—I've I made a lot of mistakes, and so I'm nervous about any kind of Andrew Hero stories. But the when when I was in high school, part of my testimony is um, I went to a church that was very very adamant about performance, and I never really heard the gospel. The gospel being, Jesus is good, dies for our sins, there's a great swap, so he takes his sins on himself, and now when God looks at you, he looks at you through the lens of Christ. And I just never heard that. And growing up in that church, I got to a point where I was really burnt out. I feel like there's only so long you can go living God dislikes you before you're either angry at God or or, or fall into atheism. And honestly, I felt like I was I was at that point when I got my dad got a syndicated letter in the mail from Steve Brown, who's a pastor in Florida, and all it did was explain the gospel, and dad left it sitting on the table somewhere, and I picked it up and read it, and uh, it changed my life, and I, I couldn't believe, and at first, it was just joy, but then it was like, well, everyone around me doesn't know this. Uh, why aren't people talking about it? And suddenly all the people who I had been desperate to prove, like to, to show that I was a good person and all of this, I suddenly had a message that I thought was really good, that people needed to hear. And I was definitely overzealous and made some mistakes that I regret. But I was, people that I used to really look up to and, and want to impress, I was now not afraid of offending them by the gospel. I remember in one particular place, I had an opportunity my senior year to give a little message, and I was just talking about the grace of Jesus, and somebody that I respected was in the back kind of shaking their head like I was I was not pushing people away from vice, and which is I really should just be keeping them from drinking. What are you doing with all this grace saves you stuff? And it didn't bother me because I was just like, this is good, and everyone needs to hear this. And I think Paul's in a similar place He was in Jerusalem. He was trained in the ways of the pharisaical way. He was hunting down Christians, and now he's coming back, and he's like, I have something really good to tell you. I remember what it was like to be me. It was miserable. I was driven by hatred and anxiety and fear, and I thought God wanted me to hunt people down, and I learned that I was totally wrong about God. And not only that, he was unbelievably gracious to me and he could be unbelievably gracious to you, too. I was twice as bad as all you guys. And here I am telling you, like, that's why his testimony is so important when he comes in. He's like, I'm just like you guys. But look what happened. I actually met God. It was really good. And he has that message for you. And so when they come and say, you will suffer, I think what Paul is like, yeah, but they're, the, they're my people. Like Bonhoeffer. They're my people that I love. i got to go back. I got to do it. So Paul loves his audience. He loves what God is doing and he wants them to be a part of it. But finally, he does it because he views himself as a servant of the king. In Colossians, this is what Paul says about himself. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, What does he mean? He means Jesus' mission, he accomplished it, but there's there's more to be done. And I am honored to be doing it. I am honored to be doing that mission. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great Among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. He sees himself. It's an honor. This Jesus he met, who should have, by any human thinking, condemned Paul, destroyed him. And instead mercifully reached out, like, Paul, you're exactly the kind of person I love and came for. He knows that Jesus. He is honored to follow him and honored to go back to Jerusalem. So I said this in my last message, even the ways that God calls us out of our limits, he serves us as creatures, but even the ways he calls us as servants is frequently a way in which he's calling us to greater dependence and trust and rest in him. I want to end with this. I catch myself every now and then. I have a, I have a pretty busy life. And my, my like out there fantasy moment is that I would have like a free week where no one depends on me. And I just have like a free calendar. And it was actually, I had a moment kind of like this, a little humorous where I I had to go to AP training uh, to teach the AP English class, which Ella loves very much. It's her favorite class. (laughs) Sorry. All right. Uh, She's doing great. She's a great writer. All right. Uh, (laughs) I had this chance to go to AP training. And it was the first time in a long time I was going to be in one place by myself for several days. And I was like, finally. Like, this is it. I'm going to, like, exercise. I'm going to, you know, <laughs> I mean, like, the, the little, it's the little things, guys. Uh, I'm going to exercise. I'm going to sleep well. I'm going to read books for fun. I'm an English teacher. I'm going to read books for fun, like, and it's going to be beautiful, you know? And it's funny when I think about that, that to me that inclination reveals how, what I think is best for me and how I think I grow. And I clearly think, deep down, that the way I grow is if everybody would just leave me alone and let me do my thing. And if everybody would leave me alone and let me do my thing, I would be awesome. That's what I think. And I had a week, uh, a couple weeks ago, my goal was like, I just wanna get to the gym once. And Posey woke me up every night at like 3 (sighs) a.m. And You know, at the end of the week, like, I could not make it once because he woke me up at three and then I couldn't wake up with the alarm and yada yada. Here's what was happening there. My way of growth was being confronted with God's way of growth. And there was a a way in which I was serving Posey and there was also a way in which God was serving me by calling me to hold Posey at 3 a.m. in the morning. So in the final calculation, a lot of the self-care, self-help misunderstands how we grow and how we flourish. We grow and flourish by being invited to follow Jesus, the suffering servant who loves people deeply and suffers because of it. I want to end with some Bonhoeffer. Um, Bonhoeffer is thinking about the apostle, uh, he's thinking about the disciple, Peter, and Peter's failure. Peter, very famously, denies Jesus three times right before Jesus is going to die. And Jesus has this conversation, resurrected Jesus has this conversation with Peter, and it's bothered me my whole life. Because what Jesus does in that conversation, he, he meets up with Peter who's failed Jesus in a way that all of us could Recognize and empathize with. We've all had moments where we felt like we should say something and we didn't, or maybe we even lied about our connections to Christ and we feel that shame. I have them. And Jesus meets with Peter, feeds him a meal and tells him, you know, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do love you. It's like, feed my sheep. And then tells him, and listen, one day you are, you're going to go and your hands are going to be stretched out you're going to be led in a way you don't want to go. He's like, one day you're going to really suffer for me. And I always thought, like, why doesn't Jesus right there just say, like, you know, it's all good. You're forgiven. Which clearly Jesus forgives him. But why this about feed my sheep and one day you'll suffer? Well, Bonhoeffer puts it this way. This grace that Peter experienced was not self-bestowed. It was the grace of Christ himself himself now prevailing upon the disciple to leave all and follow him. Now working in him that confession, which to the world much sound like ultimate blasphemy, now inviting Peter to the supreme fellowship of martyrdom for the Lord he denied. In the life of Peter, grace and discipleship are inseparable. What Jesus is doing there is the most loving thing he can do, which is invite him to follow him. In other words, following Jesus is actually about following Jesus. (laughs) That's what it's about. And it's not like there's grace, hard, we got this grace at the beginning, that's really beautiful, and now we do the hard stuff, we follow Jesus. Following Jesus is the grace. It is the good stuff. It is where we come to depend on God. In God's eyes, I am more invited to call, to love and follow him when I'm holding Posey than when I'm getting my perfect schedule and I'm eating well and everything's great. And so I, I want to leave us by, by challenging us. We are creatures, and we are servants, and that is good. And the grace is for the beginning, and the grace is for the middle, and the grace is for the end. And the grace is an invitation to follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Paul. Thank you for the way his life challenges us. It's hard to hear. There's a lot to unpack but I thank you that you only offer us the best things. You give us the best things. We come to you weak and cowardly and faithless. We say we have faith, help our unbelief, and you always meet us and invite us back. When we betray you, you meet us and feed us and invite us, feed my sheep. When we can't speak to you in the day, you meet us at night When we're in places no one else will go, you are there. Father, you seek us, you patiently call us, you love failures. Father, I fully anticipate that all of us in this room have a lot more to go, we will fail you many more times. And I fully anticipate that you will be there to forgive, to invite, and call us to yourself, which is the truly best thing. I thank you for that invitation. May we accept it every day, in Jesus' name, amen.